Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I'm your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit. She is the winner of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a National Book Critics Circle Award, the Lannan Literary Award, and the Kirkus Prize for nonfiction. Her many excellent works include Whose Story Is This? Call Them by Their True Names, Cinderella, Liberator, Men Explain Things to Me, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Wonderlust, A History of Walking, and River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge in the Technological Wild West. Her forthcoming memoir, Recollections of My Non-Existence, published by her friends at Viking, is scheduled to release in March 2020. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Lovely to be here. Thank you. It's an honor to have you here. Rebecca, I used to manage a very large corporate bookstore in San Francisco, California, and uh, this is where I discovered your work. And you always made me so proud of where I lived to be sharing a city with you. What role has the city of San Francisco played in your development as a person and as a writer? I think we're all shaped by the places we grow up and live, and I've been in the Bay Area since just before my fifth birthday, San Francisco, since I was 18. But in San Francisco has been so many things since I've lived there. It's now a much more upscale, techie city. But it has been all my life there a non-white majority city, a city of immigrants, and a profoundly queer positive city. And some of the communities I've been around, this new memoir of mine is partly about living in the black community for a lot of my adult life in a black neighborhood called the Western Edition. It's about being near the Castro, about the wonderful, blessed, magnificent gifts of being around gay men modeling what else a life could be besides marriage, family, uh, kind of conventional domesticity, what other forms families could uh, take, etc. So, and it's a beautiful city. It's a city with an ocean and a bay and water all around it. And uh, a city full of books and bookstores, a lot of, and libraries, which were really important to me. Mm. And... Uh, you know, and a city, a great walking city, a city in which I have walked thousands and thousands of miles over the years and got to know the city intimately that way, something that was part of my book Wanderlust about walking. And also a city in which when I was a young woman, street harassment was so intense and terrifying and menacing that it's a big part of what this book is about. And I think that makes it like most other American cities for young women. Thank you, Rebecca. I miss living in a city where I don't have to have a car. That was my favorite part about San Francisco. <laughs> and the funny thing is, and maybe this isn't relevant to the conversation, but you can live in a city like San Francisco as though it was Paris 200 years ago and walk everywhere. Mm. Or you can live in it like it's suburban Phoenix and drive everywhere. And people kind of choose to be urban or not urban. It's mm -hmm. partly infrastructure, but it's partly agenda and interpretation. Yeah. I've also lived in suburban Phoenix, so you're speaking my language. Um, 
I want to talk to you about your new book, Recollections of My Non-Existence. Your writing is so beautiful, Rebecca, and I hope you'll forgive me in advance because I will be quoting from it a lot. Um, Go for it. Thank you. Just because I want to make sure our listeners in North Carolina and here in Baltimore where we're recording this interview and in California and everywhere else are able to hear it and be inspired to go purchase this wonderful, important book. You open this book, Recollection of My Non-Existence, with a description of a day long ago and you were facing a full-length mirror and you write, in those days I was trying to disappear and appear, trying to be safe and to be someone, and those agendas were often at odds with each other, end quote. Can you talk to us about this and about the agenda to be someone and the agenda to be safe being at odds with each other? Yeah, I was a kid who was in love with stories as far back as I can remember. And then when I learned to read, being in love with stories meant being in love with books, and I pretty quickly decided to be a writer. And so that was part of wanting to be someone, wanting to have a voice, wanting to be a storyteller, which is a pretty powerful thing to aspire to. In some ways, it's the normal human condition because we all are stories, have stories to tell, have voices, but it's also wanting a little more of it, a little more formal version. And we live in a society where women have been silenced, discredited, disbelieved, punished for speaking up, etc. Not just when I was young, but we're seeing it right now as Harvey Weinstein goes to trial, Mm -hmm. you know, not so long after the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, for which Christine Blasey Ford, I think, is still receiving death threats for telling her truth. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be someone and I wanted to be safe. And safe meant disappearing. And I think that's a terrible conundrum for women, particularly young women, that in a society that threatens to annihilate you through violence and the erasure of your voice, your capacity to bear witness, your value, a kind of preemptive disappearance is one form of safety, not showing up, not speaking up, not demanding to be a full participant in the class, the you know, the profession, the the family, etc. And so this is a book about navigating how do you be safe by disappearing? How do you fight against the forces that want to disappear you? How do you find a path through them? And I wrote it not because I think my story is full of exceptional oppression and suffering, but I think I had a pretty lightweight, normal version, but I wanted to really bear witness with an intimacy I could only extract from my own first-hand experience, because I think this affects all of us, those of us who are impacted by it directly, and those of us who live in a world full of others who are impacted in it, which makes it a very asymmetrical, uneven world. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. And as you write about these days of your life when you were a student at San Francisco State University, you're talking about, you talk about an apartment you found where your mom filled out your paperwork so you had to pay the rent every month by obtaining a money order and signing her name to it. Um, where was this apartment and can you tell us about what it was like to live there? Were you afraid you were going to get caught out by the landlord? I was so afraid. I really felt... Um so tentative for the eight years before through mild trickery I managed to legalize my status there and stay another uh, uh, you know 16 or 17 but on Super Bowl Sunday of 1981 I was living in an SRO hotel and with no you know tiny little room opening onto an air shaft and a pretty gritty 
building, no real kitchen. And I went house hunting, and even then people laughed at me when I said I was looking for a place for 200 a month. And of course, when you're looking for the most affordable stuff, you end up in the most non-white community. So I went to see this stunningly beautiful apartment, and the building manager was this older black man who on Super Bowl Sunday was watching the blues on TV. And when I told him I wanted the apartment, he helped me kind of trick the slumlord property management team by getting my mom to fill out the paperwork because she looked good on paper and of course I was young and impoverished. My parents were not supporting me in any way and hadn't since I was 17. And um, so I got into, with his help, and he became this great benefactor and giving me my first good home, my first safe home in a lot of ways. Mm. And um, you know, and neither of us knew what a big gift he was giving me because I stayed there for 25 years. I wrote, uh, you know, it's where I became a writer, where I, you know, where I learned how to write, where I fought a lot of the struggles really described in this book. And um, it was in a black neighborhood, and I really learned something about being urban. Because it was, you know, I grew up in, this, in the white suburbs where people are strenuously avoiding eye contact, social contact. You live behind tall fences and separate houses and separateness is everything. And just to be in a place where people walked and greeted people on the street and greeted strangers. And a kind of playfulness and eloquence of banter and language, the sound of gospel coming out of the dozen churches in our little neighborhood, mm -hmm. and uh, really kind of is a lot of how I learned to be urban, although a lot, maybe urban's the wrong word for it, mm -hmm. because a lot of these older people, like Mr. Young, my building manager, had come up from the small communities in the south, they were part of the, the great northward migration. Mm -hmm. But it was a place that taught me so much, and it was my home for 25 years. Yeah, thank you so much. I lived in a similar situation on Post Street, Rebecca, for many years, so this passage jumped out at me, and I appreciated you writing about it. Next, I want to talk to you about the process of becoming a writer as your city and your environment were changing around you. You write on page 116, it is as easy to decide to be a writer as to decide to have a piece of cake, but then you have to do it. As the city is undergoing a metamorphosis, you are as well, and this parallel is drawn so masterfully. Can you talk about your maturation from someone who saw herself as a writer to someone who actually wrote things and got them published, and how this happened as the city was also changing around you? I didn't see myself as a writer until I was publishing. I never wanted to be one of those people who showed up at parties and talks about what they're writing about, and you run into them 10 years later and they've got the same story and there was a, there was actually a point where I was like okay I've been making a living at this for a while I've done I've done this much I could, I'm, I think I'll call myself a writer but I so it wasn't that I thought I was a writer it's that I wanted to be a writer and the, the noun doesn't really matter the verb matters which is to write and writing and uh, and I feel in a way kind of lucky that I didn't Nobody had big ambitions for me. Nobody told me I was awesome and amazing. And 
I really started out with little things. I wrote little pieces in weekly newspapers and magazines and, you know, 800 words and then 1,200 words and then 2,000 words and then some bigger pieces. And I had an idea for a book that came out of my graduate thesis, which is about a remarkable counterculture visual artist Wallace Berman and the community around him and got a book contract with City Lights and then was like oh my god now I have to write a book how the hell do you do that and I kind of talk myself down by saying mm-hmm. okay I know how to write an essay a nonfiction book is like writing 17 linked essays I can write an essay and somehow I got through it. And really, like I said, nobody had big ambitions for me. I thought I was going to have a day job and write on the side. My childhood ambition to write books, I wasn't sure where that was going to go. And so I wrote, and then I wrote a little more, and then I wrote a little more. Even when I wrote that first book, I thought I was going to go back and get you know, a 9-to-5 job like I'd had before. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't gotten around to it. It's been 30... It'll be 32 years this summer since I left my last job, Mm. and I've done some teaching and Mm. a little bit of contract work, but I haven't been an employee since, and and it's kind of more wonderful than I ever believed that I would make a living doing this, and I want to give a shout out to all the independent bookstores that took care of my books, which is why I make a living from it, and to all the readers who are, you know sustaining the independent bookstores that are sustaining me so thank you all you out there thank you rebecca um you write about a writing desk that was gifted to you by a friend who a year year or so before gifting you with this desk was stabbed 15 times by an ex-boyfriend to punish her for leaving him my god rebecca You go on to write about PTSD and about how this is often a condition assigned to men who have suffered stress in combat, but it is rarely, if ever, assigned to women who are rape survivors. Please talk about this because this is very important for people to hear. Yeah, I quoted David Morris, an ex-Marine, who wrote a fantastic book about PTSD and who has really acknowledged that, yeah, people get PTSD from war from being in combat, but even more than that, they get PTSD from rape, which means that there's a ton of people in this culture walking around with PTSD. We haven't honored and acknowledged as we have combat veterans. But that desk, one of the joys of writing a book is it pushes you, or at least it pushes me, to think harder, go deeper, understand more. My friend gave me that desk when I was 19, right after I moved into the apartment Mr. Young made possible for me. And I knew her story. It's been the desk on which I've written pretty much everything I've ever written. I was in my last semester as an undergrad when she gave me that desk. And, um, you know, I did my graduate work on it. I wrote my first things on it. I wrote some of this book on it. And it was kind of a shock to realize, okay, everything I've ever written was written on a platform given to me by a woman a man tried to annihilate, tried to punish and silence for daring to take care of herself by leaving him, by, for daring to have her own will, her own agenda, for valuing herself rather than being utterly submissive to him and all about him. 
and I felt like, okay, so in some sense, everything I've ever written has tried has on this gift from her has been a countering to that act of erasure, and that's one way I think the desk matters. But I think another thing I want to say about that story is. We often act like violence, it either happens to you physically in your own body or it doesn't happen, as though that's the only way we're impacted by it. But I wrote this book specifically because I'm not a victim of any one spectacular act of violence, because like so many people, the real impact has been that everything that's happened to my friends, my family members, the women I read about, every single day in the news and social media could have been me and it's just the reason that I wasn't murdered, the reason that I wasn't raped, the reason that I wasn't tortured, the reason I wasn't kidnapped, you know, is not because of who I am, it's just accidents of fate because these things happen to women, um, you know, uh, every day and that's, you know, I. And it's been a profound impact on me to live in that world. And it's also something that's made me feel that this, like my last memoir I called an anti-memoir, is also an anti-memoir. Because a memoir is often a story of overcoming. I was born into difficult circumstances or discrimination or something terrible happened to me. And this is how, through personal effort, or transformation, I somehow reconciled myself, moved on, healed, etc. And something I feel that's really important about this is the only change that matters is, you know, profound social transformation. Because it's not about me being safe personally, it's not me having nice people around, it's not, it's about because I'm impacted by the fact that this happens to other people. I'm watching one of my great nieces hit adolescence and suddenly like creepy men were following her around and that sense of dread like, oh my god, it's her turn to begin being a target and going to her college campus and seeing that it's Stalker Awareness Month. Mm. What kind of a society are we where we have Stalker Awareness Month mm -hmm. and domestic violence shelters in which women and children hide from men who want to harm them in which we have rape, rape crisis hotlines because this stuff is so pervasive and so normal. So I really wrote about it as a feminist which is to say a person who wants to see this change for everyone not just to be safe and well myself and as somebody who's best antidote to the powerlessness and the erasure and the annihilation of this experience has been to be a feminist, to be a voice advocating for the rights, the voices, the freedoms, the liberties, the dignities of everyone faced with this kind of non-existence, erasure, annihilation, torture, dehumanization, devaluation. And I should say, this is a book about gender, but it's also about how much I learned from looking from the communities I was also part of as somebody who worked on Native American land rights very intensely for years in Nevada, as somebody who lived in a black community and addressed the structural racism in Hurricane Katrina in another book of mine, A Paradise Built in Hell, as someone who learned about homophobia from, you know, having so many queer friends and being in a, a sort of queer-friendly city, so it's not 
you know, about... It, it tries to understand the intersectionality of all these things, but my experience was, was primarily because of my gender, and so that's primarily what this book is about. Thank you, Rebecca, for speaking towards and writing towards this important issue. Listeners, we are going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor, and I will be right back with Rebecca Solnit. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Rebecca Solnit, author of Recollections of My Non-Existence, published by our friends at Viking. Rebecca, you write on page 65 that you have joked that not getting raped was the most avid hobby of your youth. Um, You just spoke towards this issue a little bit, but I'm hoping that you can talk about this quote that not getting raped was the most avid hobby of your youth. One of the things we don't talk about a lot is how much women are instructed almost from birth about all the things they shouldn't do, shouldn't wear, shouldn't drink, Mm. shouldn't say, shouldn't be in order not to get raped. And if I grew up with a lot of brothers and my mother had very different attitudes about what they should, what they could and should do versus what I could and should do Mm. because of that fear. And you see it all over. And most of my life, we didn't have a society that said, rapists cause rape. We were told that it was because of where we were or what we wore or we were out too late or we were out alone. So we're constantly being told to limit what we did, where we went, how we acted. As though, you know, the victims were the only ones responsible for preventing the crime. And that's kind of monstrous in that it treated rape as a natural and inevitable thing like the weather where it's it wasn't like we need to stop the people who are doing this and we still see it on campuses and things where um, you know we still see that where we're, and, and I think it's realistic to take precautions to be safe but that has to happen in a context where we address that the perpetrators are the problem, not the behavior of the victims, that that rapists cause rape, as some young campus activist coined a while ago to point out that short skirts and, you know, and alcohol and being out and taking a walk and going to a party and being pretty and, you know, are not things that... that cause rape, which as we know happens to babies and grandmothers and um, boys as, you know, uh, unconscious people in institutions and etc. 
So I wanted, so, but I did spend a lot of my life learning to disappear, to fade away, to disengage, how to, you know, and it was really a kind of horrible, cringing thing where you couldn't stand up for yourself. And it was also in social situations where if you said no to some guy directly, he might get really mad. And this is part of how I think women get a reputation for being duplicitous, is that you're afraid to say, no, I'm not interested, leave me alone. Because that might inflame him. So you're doing, all, you know, you always hear about women giving out fake phone numbers. And, mm. and just that command to constantly flatter and appease as though you're obliged to perform service to every man who comes along and a lot of what I was dealing with was men making demands on me on the street as though any stranger demand had the right to demand a smile or a blowjob or anything between from me as though I was a universal servant of you know half the population and so you know non-existence was also about learning to disappear to not be an object of attention uh, to not ramp up what was happening and um, and you know the hobby of not getting raped was about negotiating my profound desire to be free to roam to walk to explore and the fact that I was a pretty solitary person I didn't have a lot of friends until my 30s and um, and I didn't want to be a shut-in mm. thank you Rebecca um I'm going to jump a few dozen pages ahead now and ask you about social media. In the section titled Freely at Night, you write about a day in 2011 when you got a Facebook friend request from someone you knew when you were 17. You write, once I found out he was conservative, things that had seemed mysterious or exotic about him when he was young suddenly made sense. Can you tell us about what you mean and maybe to broaden the question a little bit, talk about navigating social media as a whole? Yeah, this was a friend, my first year in a four-year college. He was lovely and protective and fun, but there was just some of his life goals and things were just unfamiliar to me. And so it was funny when I realized like, oh, he was a conservative, which meant he wanted to get married young and have children and stuff when a lot of the more bohemian liberal people were all about, I want to be free as, as long as possible, etc. But it was just this funny, cranky communication that resulted in him sending me a trove of handwritten letters or photocopies of handwritten letters I'd written him when I was, I think, 18 and 19 that I didn't even want to look at until I read, wrote this book when I felt like, okay, I need to meet this person even though these letters are going to mortify me because she's kind of clueless and pretentious and, you know, the young person I met was unable to really go deep into what was going on that mattered, that impacted me emotionally. I was unable to talk about emotions in any significant way, so I was wildly evasive and trying so hard to find a voice by being full of quotes and citations and phrases I'd picked up and wit and cleverness and etc. So, so it was torture to read those letters, but for the sake of the book, I plowed on through them. Thank you so much. And I want to go in a totally opposite direction now with this next question and ask you about your writing on walking, specifically the influence of Wordsworth's The Prelude, which was one of my early favorite poems when I began to study literature. Um, can you talk about the influence of walking on your work? 
And I have been a great walker all my life, or you know, great by don't mean an awesome athlete, an avid walker. You know, I've now walked 170 miles in the Himalayas twice. And, you know, the last time I went hiking was about five miles this weekend. And um, But also I'm a city walker and that kind of roaming I f- felt was always felt was kind of a way of being roaming in your imagination as well. And when I realized it is when I realized I wanted to write about walking as a book subject and, uh, you know, to write about what is the inner life that can only take place when you're moving physically through the outer world. How has it been a form of eroticism and courtship of spiritual seeking and pilgrimage, of protest and uprising, but also of interior life. And one of the great walkers in European literary history is William Wordsworth, who once said, had he not been born into the station he was and become a poet, he might have been a peddler. And he and his sister Dorothy were truly champion walkers, and they would walk 40 miles in a day, which is pretty badass. And uh, But also, I went to where he wrote a lot of his formative poetry, Dove Cottage, in the Lake District in England, and he had a little mount about 10 feet, 10 paces across, he would walk back and forth on while he composed. And that made me realize that the rhythm in his poetry is often, which is a kind of blank verse that's very casual and conversational, that the rhythm in his work is a kind of walking rhythm and if you think of it as that then suddenly the meter of his work makes sense and that's how deep walking goes for him as well as in the subject of many of his poems the prelude is uh, you know a poem of coming into being much you know a much grander construction than recollections of my non-existence but also a kind of buildings roman about formative life but so many of his other poems about Lucy and the old leech gatherer and etc are about I met I met as a stranger who told me their story or I saw a person and wondered about them are you know that he's it's a poetry about walking as well as infused with the rhythm of walking and also I think a kind of association a freedom of association of ideas and thoughts and images that's also very ruminative and meandering wandering all the you know those last two words which can apply to both thinking and walking mm-hmm. so I think that the freedom to walk is also can be a kind of freedom to think and in Wanderlust I quote Thoreau who says how women who are still more shut up than men can bear it I don't understand or something approximately like that and so of course this is part of why I was so passionate about having the freedom to roam and so outraged by what impacted that freedom to roam if walking is thinking what happens to the people who can't walk and that applies as well to men of color harassed by the police and documented immigrants afraid of being picked up for being out in public and um people live in places where you can't walk for other reasons including just infrastructure and of course women of all colors and conditions mm-hmm. thank you rebecca um 
I'm going to hop ahead to the section called hopscotch. Uh, one of my favorite subgenres of literature are um, works that are inspired by visual art. Can you please talk about the influence of visual art on your writing? Yeah, I got a job at an art magazine when I was turning 23 and stayed there for a while. And I'd done a art history in college, worked at SF MoMA, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the best job I ever had as a grad student doing research on major works of art. And so in my 20s, a lot of my friends became artists, and I feel so incredibly lucky and now that I'm talking to somebody from Raleigh, North Carolina, I feel like I can quote my Southern friendly and say, I was so blessed. A Southern expression I really mm -hmm. love. Because artists ask the biggest, most foundational, most philosophical questions. There's a lot of givens about writing that you're probably writing to publish in a book that the book is going to be created and formatted and printed and circulated in certain ways, whereas an artist can be doing anything from social interventions to public art to environmental projects to performances. And the artists of those times and the artists I was around were asking big questions about making, about the economic realities in which art exists, about materials and the meanings that are implicit in materials. What does, what does iron mean? What does honey mean? What does wax mean? What does you know, wool mean? Mm. And so this deep investigation of the very act of making and all the social, economic, ecological, ontological questions that relate to it was such a eye-opening consciousness you know expanding experience and they were also some of these artists Richard Mizrak and Hamilton Louis de Soto were some of the people who really encouraged me to think of myself not just as a critic and a journalist which is what I was doing um, into my mid-twenties, but to think of myself really as a writer, and they did that by asking me to work with them, which was an honor and an invitation to start developing the kind of writing I'm still doing, and uh, so it was everything, and I still have a lot of good friends who are photographers and other vis kinds of visual artists, and I'm still so grateful to be in the realm of those expansive imaginations and beautiful creations. Excellent, thank you. I'm going to take a brief moment to shout out my friend Casey Lightman, who works at the Museum of Modern Art right now. He may be working there as we are recording. Hello, Casey. Um, Rebecca, also in this section you write, The North Star is so far away from Earth that it takes light more than 300 years to reach us, and even the light from the closest star takes four years. A book is a little like a star in that what you read is what the author was passionately immersed in long before, sometimes only because of the time it takes a book to be written, edited, printed, and distributed. This book we are talking about now, Recollections of My Non-Existence, has not even been released yet as we sit here, but as you have written in this passage, it must be old hat for you at this point. What is it like to sit here and do an interview like this for an old work that hasn't been released yet? Is your mind already one or two steps ahead? I am deep in my next book, which I am incredibly excited about, and uh, so I always feel like there's a sound of ripping Velcro when I pull myself away from mm -hmm. what I'm writing at the moment to think about anything else. But I am 
passionate about what this book is about. I'm excited that I get to go out and talk about it. And it's not that long ago. And what I was talking about partly there is those funny moments where somebody has just read a book of yours. It's completely fresh in their minds. They want to talk to you about it. And you're like, well, yeah, but I wrote that 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we just talked about Wanderlust. Mm-hmm. Probably 20 years ago, I could have completely nailed that Thoreau quote. Mm-hmm. But I probably haven't read it verbatim for a while. Mm-hmm. So it's just that, in that there is a little bit of disjuncture between the time something is made sometimes. But I also do a lot of political journalism and essay writing, particularly at The Guardian and LitHub.com. And it is kind of a wonderful counter, whereas a book often takes you know, a couple years or more from inception to publication. I have often written things on a Thursday and had them come out in LitHub on a Friday Mm -hmm. so that I can really participate in the conversation happening right now about something in the news. Mm. And that's, you know, has its charm. Then you're more of a meteor and less of a distant star. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And if I ask you a question about every passage in this book that I've highlighted, we will be here for hours. And I am realizing as I say this, how much of an effect this book has had on me and will continue to have. You say towards the end of this wonderful book that there are three key things that matter in having a voice. Credibility, credibility, and consequence. Can you take a moment to elaborate on this for our listeners? Yeah, one of, and there's two big things that really kind of re-educated me writing this book. One was truly understanding what that desk meant and what it meant that everything I've ever written, you know, has been on that desk. The other thing was understanding that though I thought I'd been writing about violence against women since 2008 in particular, the year I published Men Explained Things to Me, the essay that has had such an interesting life out there. Actually, what I'd been writing about in that essay and everything since is voice and voicelessness. We often act as though to have a voice is just to be able to make a noise. And you know, Cats and dogs can make a noise. Your blender can make a, make a noise. And that the problem wasn't that women don't have voices. It's that those voices were not being given the space, the weight that you need to have to be a full member of a culture. So the problem wasn't that the sounds weren't coming out of us, it's that they weren't being received. And so often we ask, why didn't she speak up about that? And it's like, well, she did, but nobody wanted to hear, or she knew she would only be punished for speaking up, and that there would be no... So to have a voice first means audibility, that you can be heard, and that means a bunch of things. That includes... Are you able to testify in court, which women have historically not been? Are you invited into the spaces where people determine what happened, what matters, etc.? Are you, you know, is it safe for you to speak up in your own marriage, in your own home, or your own family? And we have books like Educated where you read about a woman ostracized for daring to tell the truth and told that the price of membership is silence and obedience to the lies. So audibility is the ability to speak up without fear of punishment. 
Credibility is when you're believed because what we've seen as recently as the last political ruckus in the news is that women who say things that are uncomfortable for men are often almost automatically assumed to be manipulative, venomous, dishonest, vindictive, etc. The, the presumption is that they're lying. Another presumption is that we don't have the, the capacity to know and understand what happened. There's a kind of reversion often to the idea that men are objective even when they're subjective, that women are subjective even when they're objective. And so credibility is doesn't mean that women never lie. It just means that everybody is accorded the same, you know, participate or is given the same level of believability or the right to establish the credibility of what they say. And consequence means that what you say matters, that your words have power, whether you say no, leave me alone, which is what we talk about with consent in personal sexual relationships, you know, the right, or, you know, the right that, that your words have power in the world, or they have consequence in that you say something happened in a courtroom and, um, you know, and, and, you have credibility and then there are consequences. What we've seen, and again I'll go to Christine Blasey Ford, who seemed to a lot of us like the most credible witness we'd ever seen. You know, she's her her field in psychology is actually exactly this. She told a very ordinary story of the kind of thing that happens all the time. And you know, huge numbers of people believed her, but there are absolutely no consequences. Brett Kavanaugh, um, you know, who for me made an incredible performance of histrionics and self-pity and rage and you know, a lot of self-contradiction, lying on other about other things, was given credibility and consequence despite his performance, and she was denied those things despite mm -hmm. her performance. So that's kind of like one of the great case studies we've had. So to have a voice is not about what comes out of your your mouth; it's about how it's received in the world. I said in 2008 credibility is a is a basic survival tool because if you say my husband is trying to kill me and no one believes you your chances of ending up dead are a lot higher mm -hmm. and that has happened over and over but i was wrong as i say in this book to call it a tool because a tool is in your own hands and you wield it you determine whether it works and how it works and so many women have spoken up and they haven't been up audible or credible or the voice hasn't had consequences and so what I'm arguing for is a radical equality of voices and of course we could apply this to other categories of people who also have not been accorded equality and this is something I've written about elsewhere and one of the breakthroughs with cell phone cameras is seeing how often the police lie about what happened mm -hmm. and beginning to grant more credibility to victims of police violence for example often male, often not white, etc. So I really wanted to understand more deeply what does it mean to have a voice? And of course this is a book both about formulating a voice as a writer, the very specific act of that, but also just trying to formulate a voice as a human being, which is something all of us do. That's partly a task of who are we, what do we want to say, who do we want to talk to, who do we listen to that in informs us, what are the conversations we're part of, what matters to us. But then also for a lot of us, 
what do we have to do to be heard and what are the consequences of not being heard? And so that's the great conundrum of my life where in the category of my gender, there's been so much silencing and erasure and undermining and yet I've had this lucky career as a writer, particularly in recent years, using my voice to try and create a space for other voices. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It appears that programs are transitioning here where we're recording at the American Booksellers Association Winter Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. Listeners, I've been speaking with Rebecca Solnit, author of Recollections of My Non-Existence, published by our friends at Viking. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank Rebecca Solnit for joining me. Copies of Recollections of My Non-Existence can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. The North Carolina Book Festival is February 21st through 23rd in Raleigh, North Carolina, featuring all of your favorite local, national, and international best-selling writers and poets. Please visit www.ncbookfestival.com for more information. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.